Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain with you all for a couple hours this Thursday. I'm just waking myself up here. John and I had just been talking about how terribly sad (laughs) it is to still be talking about this school shooting in Texas. But we are, of course, going to get into that. Um, Later in the show, we are going to be talking about China, uh, especially as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today gives a major speech on U.S. policy regarding that country. We are going to get into some politics. We're going to get into what is going on in the Michael Sussman case in a, in a deeper way. Uh, we will talk about what Republicans want to know about the now abandoned disinformation board at the Department of Homeland Security. We are going to talk in some detail about gun control efforts in the United States and what stands in the way of them. Uh, we'll talk about CNN, of all organizations, actually challenging Israel's depiction of the events leading to the death of journalist Shireen Abu Akla and whether that investigation will matter, you know, but at least they are doing it. Uh, We are going to get into the challenges facing third parties in the U.S. We will talk about Kevin Spacey, which uh, is I shouldn't say that's a fun story because it's also not, uh, but it is maybe a belated comeuppance. So there is more to get into uh, than this school shooting, but there is still a lot to talk about um, because the actions of the police are now getting a lot of attention. Yes. Only in the last uh, half hour, I think, the Washington Post big uh, banner headline on the front page has switched over to scrutiny mounts over police response because uh, it, well, we should say from the start that the timeline seems really unclear, but there are a lot of questions being raised about the actions police took and didn't take mm-hmm. and the timing of those actions because it is very clear that both parents and police knew about the shooter only moments into his rampage. Yes. Right? I mean, he he was engaged in some way by a school security officer as he went into the school. There's videos of him going into the school. So police were on the scene very quickly. Yes. And then what exactly they did for the next 40 minutes to an hour other than Uh, restrain and threaten to tase parents gathered outside is very unclear. You have videos of parents uh, yelling at officers who are standing around to go into the school. Uh, You have videos of screaming parents who, uh, you know, I can't hear, but they they certainly think they are hearing gunshots from inside the school yelling at officers to go inside. You have groups of parents saying they are going to rush the school themselves because police aren't doing it. And they are yelling things like he's shooting in there. You're out here worrying about us. Uh, You know, a a cop says you've got guys going in to get kids. Then you have officer um, of the Texas Police Department of Safety, Chris Olivares, uh, actually telling a local San Antonio news station that that is exactly what happened. Uh, He said uh, cops went in to get their own kids (gasps) from the school. So like the shooter is barricaded in a room. And uh, according to reports from Uh, Department of Safety, Texas Department of Safety officials, uh, police went around the school breaking windows trying to get other kids out. But also it seems like they went in to specifically get their own children out while the shooter was still barricaded in a room with, uh, you know, teachers and uh, dozens of students. So 
Yeah, this is all unfolding over, again, 40 minutes to an hour. You have video of police uh, tackling and restraining at least one parent mm-hmm. while other parents look on and go, what What yeah. are you doing MSNBC's here? MSNBC's been playing that in a loop. It's, it's horrifying. Uh, then when Border Patrol and tactical teams arrived, they couldn't break down the door to get to the classroom, so they had to go get a school staff member to open it for them. There is a gut-wrenching story about uh, cops possibly getting another child hurt or killed. In an interview with the same local San Antonio station, a fourth grader who survived the massacre uh, describes his experience and says, when the cops came, the cop said, yell if you need help. And one of the people in my class said, help. The guy overheard and he came in and shot her. The cop barged into the classroom, the guy shot at the cop, and then the cops started shooting. So again, like, Entering the classroom, trying to engage with the kids without taking out the shooter seems to have been a, a terrible mistake. And I mean, you know, I can certainly understand restraining parents from running into a school unprotected and unarmed if there is a madman with a gun inside. Right. I don't I don't question that. I don't think you should necessarily let people run into harm's way. Yeah. But that's only if you're restraining them because police officers are doing the job they're supposed to be doing, which is that dangerous work of confronting people with weapons. Yes. If they're just milling around holding back crowds of relatives waiting for backup while someone inside a building shoots a bunch of kids and maybe not that fast, you know, yes, maybe not all at once, but over a period of 40 minutes, that is just awful. Right. And especially if you have kids who have been shot, who might've survived if they got faster treatment. And again, these are all questions that are going to be answered. I hope over the next couple of days, but certainly the picture that is emerging is not one that makes these cops look competent look uh, prepared to do their jobs, look willing to uh, enter dangerous situations, any of those things. So it's a, you know, compounding the horror of this situation is the response by police. And then you get the likes of Ted Cruz, who I want to punch in the face. Making an ass of himself. Making an ass of himself, saying that the answer to all of this is to um, install stronger doors Mm -hmm. at the school, Mm -hmm. reinforce doors. And also have only one? Right. Have and only, only one? have one entry and, and, and exit. The stupidity of that really yeah. does boggle my Shocking. mind. This is not this is this not is like a guy an who graduated oh, you're, from you're, Harvard. Yeah. This is not childish political analysis or whatever. No. This is just how can you how could that possibly come out of your mouth? Right. Unbelievable. And speaking of hardening schools. Right. Uh, we also have a lot of information now about what did not prevent this crime. Uh, Uvalde, of course, the town where the shooting happened. It's a city of 16,000 people. It spends 40 percent of its annual city budget on these police. Oh, there you go. Who wouldn't How's go into this you? classroom with the guy who's shooting kids with an AR-15. Mm-hmm. So great that half of your half of your budget every year going to... These guys in hats. I'm having a hard time not swearing at them. Uh, also, CBS is reporting that the Uvalde school district had actually doubled its security budget in recent years. Uh, part of this was due to legislation passed following a 2018 school shooting in which eight students and two teachers were killed. They had adopted a bunch of security measures that included having its own police force, having a threat assessment team at each school, a threat reporting system, social media monitoring software, fences around schools, and a requirement that teachers lock their classroom doors, right? So they had a whole security plan. None of that stopped this from happening. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, to to learning in more detail what the timeline actually was. There was yes. a reporter at The Verge who uh, went to listen to the police scanner audio and uh, is it's missing a crucial chunk. It doesn't seem to be terribly mysterious. It seems to indicate that the police switched from a publicly accessible um, frequency to an encrypted tactical one. But so Sounds it does like Arlington prevent- County, Virginia. Oh, yeah? They don't want anybody listening to the police. So the whole thing is encrypted now. You can't get it on a scanner or on a scanner app. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of seems to be what happened for this uh, crucial chunk of time. They, they switched over mm-hmm. to an encrypted one. But I mean, really, like, there's, there's it, it, clearly there was, there was definitely quite a bit of standing around. Standing yeah. around and not engaging for quite a long time, while at the very least you had a bunch of injured people inside that classroom. Truly shocking. And that shocking. is uh, horrifying to contemplate. Truly shocking. Yep. Uh, we're going to continue covering this in the, in the days and weeks to come, uh, but there are a lot of questions uh, to which answers are, are deserved and mm-hmm. greatly needed, not just for the, the parents of these poor children who were killed and, and injured, but... Uh, but for all Americans, especially all Americans who have children going to school every day, you know, they're, Amazon now, you can go on Amazon and buy a bulletproof backpack for your, for your elementary school uh, child. So in case a shooter comes in, he can hold the backpack up in front of his head so he doesn't get shot in the head. Yeah. That's what we've come to. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more in the news, too. Uh, Michelle, there there was an incident in Iran. We mentioned yesterday on the show that uh, that uh, an IRGC Quds Force uh, commander was assassinated in front of his home in South Tehran. Uh, Two assassins on motorcycles drove up to him while he was getting into his car. He had just fastened his seatbelt. They opened fire on him. They hit him in the face and the head five times and he was killed instantly. Well, something else happened yesterday. Uh, We're not exactly sure what it is, but an Iranian nuclear engineer at a at a facility called Parchin, which is where the IAEA says if the Iranians were to be developing a nuclear program, this is where they would be experimenting with um, nuclear triggers. Somebody I shouldn't say somebody, some kind of an accident occurred there yesterday killing an engineer and wounding another engineer. Now, you, you read these reports and you're led to believe this really wasn't an accident. It was some sort of sabotage. Uh, yesterday, I speculated on the show that, that um, this was likely the Israelis that killed this Quds Force uh, commander. Well, if the Israelis are running around Tehran doing things, this would make perfect sense to me. That, well, didn't, uh, they, didn't they take the blame belatedly for killing another nuclear engineer in oh, yeah, last just a, year? Yeah. In November of 2020, yeah. they came right out and said, yep, we did it. We shot that guy. We did it. They, what are you well, they do? ambushed his motorcade, right? Mm-hmm. That was the situation. Yes. Yeah. And there had been a series of explosions in Iran that yes. um, didn't get a ton of attention, partly because I think Iranians downplayed them a lot. Correct. Correct. Because it's embarrassing to yeah. them to to have Israelis running around their country, sabotaging their stuff and killing their leaders. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. Um, There was one other thing uh, that I wanted to raise, too. And this is breaking news just from the last hour or so about uh, Kevin Spacey. Oh, no. Yeah. Kevin Spacey, who I 
I always thought was just one of the greatest actors of our of our generation uh, is in very big trouble in the UK. He was charged this morning with four counts of sexual assault. And um, one of these counts uh, is sexual assault involving penetrative sexual activity without consent against a 14-year-old. One of the rape charges is against a 16-year-old. And uh, they occurred in 2005, 2008, and 2013. You might recall at the time, he was the artistic director of the Old Vic Theater in London. He had taken a break from Hollywood. He moved to London. He was there for several years uh, running this theater. And 20 theater employees, 20, accused him of um, inappropriateness uh, on the job. And then he had the daylights beaten out of him one morning, six o'clock in the morning. He was in Hyde Park and a guy beat the snot out of him. Uh, The guy was questioned by the police and he said Kevin Spacey had... um, made a sexual advance and and grabbed his crotch and Spacey said, no, no, I was walking my dog and he was walking his dog and the leashes got entangled. And as we were trying to entangle them, my hand brushed against his groin. That just sounds like a child's explanation Uh for how you got walked up to the doorbell and then maybe you leaned on it, but you didn't mean to you know, press it. And then your mom called you and you ran away. And that's how your doorbell rang. And you saw me running away. <laughs> you know, exactly. I've made up things like that. I think maybe once when I was eight and I realized it was stupid as it was coming out of my mouth. So all of this past activity has finally caught up with him. It seems, you know, he, he's already been in trouble here in the United States for making a pass at a 17 year old. Uh, the, the charge was filed and then dropped after this, this kid turned 18. But Uh, But the civil suit was settled out of court. Kevin Spacey's career is done. It's been done for two years now. He's never going to work again. But this now makes me wonder if he's ever going to be free again. Yeah. Because these are very, very serious charges. Yeah, they are. Hey, would you like an update on this? um, The shooting story? Yeah. The shooting story? It's not a huge. This is according to uh, Texas law enforcement in a preliminary timeline. Uh, but they are saying basically he he didn't exchange fire with the district police officer outside the school. The officer was at a, in a car nearby, rushed to the scene. Uh, as he arrived at the school, the gunman was already approaching. He started firing the school. He went inside. Within minutes, two members of the police department had entered the school. They both got shot. Uh, they fell back. And then just then the shooting continued inside the classroom as everyone else sort of gathered outside, milled around, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. collected themselves to have another shot. That's what it seems like so far. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, Well, we're going to have to debate this a lot. Yeah, we'll be talking about this a lot more. And we've got other topics to get to as well, though. So we're going to take a quick break here and come back to introduce our first guest. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The country continues to reel from the massacre two days ago at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And despite the fact that 19 children were murdered, we are not closer at all to gun control legislation in any form than we were before the attack. In fact, Senator Ted Cruz, the Republican from Texas, as I said a few minutes ago, opined yesterday that the answer to school shootings is to have reinforced doors at the entrances and to make only one entrance and exit. Even a proposal for background checks doesn't have enough votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster, and among Republicans, only six have expressed a willingness to even entertain a bill to toughen background checks. Meanwhile, the Michael Sussman trial continues to grind on here in Washington, and while the testimony yesterday of Robbie Mook, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager, did damage to Clinton herself, it may have actually helped Sussman. And there's a lot to tell you about Hunter Biden. He's hired a top Hollywood entertainment attorney, best known for negotiating a nine-figure deal for the creators of South Park, to begin circulating a counter-narrative about the famed or infamous Hunter Biden laptop in advance of what likely will be congressional investigations of Biden if the Republicans win one or both houses of Congress. We're going to talk about that and more with Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of thepolemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, thanks for having me. Always good to have you, Jim. Let's start with uh, the school shooting in Uvalde. I, I don't want to rehash the shooting itself. Uh, instead, I'd like to talk to you about policy coming out of the shooting or not coming out of the shooting, if that's the case. The congressman who represents Uvalde said that now is not the time to talk about gun control because emotions are raw. Republicans said exactly the same thing after Sandy Hook, after Aurora and Columbine and every other major shooting. And then once time passes, they kill gun control legislation. The Democrats had already passed a year ago tougher background check legislation in the House, but it's been sitting in the Senate all this time. Chuck Schumer has to decide now whether to call for a vote on what the House has already passed or to try to work with Republicans to try to come up with a bipartisan compromise. What are the prospects, do you think, for passage of some sort of legislation, even if it's as minor as background checks? Well, let me say that as a left supporter of gun rights, I don't think it's not the time to talk about it. It is the time. It's always the time to talk about it. And I did republish an old article of mine today on my Substack mm -hmm. and on my website. Uh, I'm not sure what... I know this legislation about background checks. I am in principle in favor of background checks. I think the problem here is not guns. It's something else more difficult than guns. Mm -hmm. Guns are a symptom and a, 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 they exacerbate a pro other problems. And I'm yeah. all for keeping guns out of the hands of people who demonstrably shouldn't have them. This legislation, as I understand it, that's in place is something that would have extended background checks that already exist to private sales and gun shows, which is in principle fine right, by me. Right, right. But uh, uh, I wouldn't have stopped this either. This kid, as, I far, as far as I know, had no red flags in that respect. And uh, the problem with gun control legislation 
you know, everybody, when this happens, everybody wants something to be done and we want gun control, we want gun control. There is gun control legislation. And what are the specific, as I said, background checks, that's in principle fine. But when they start getting to other things, it becomes the, you know, there are 50 million Americans who own guns. Right. (laughs) And they're doing nothing wrong. They're just owning guns. And when it comes down to specific questions and specific policies, this assault rifle ban, et cetera, et cetera, people look at it and say, well, that's not really what I want. I really don't want not to have access to a rifle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's really a, not any kind of magical weapon. And uh, so you have, you know, the gun, gun violence in the United States, people have to realize You know, the gun ownership of the United States has increased dramatically in the past 20 years among Democrats faster than among Republicans. And gun homicides in the United States have decreased. So, you know, these incidents of mass shooting are very dramatic, but they don't really represent the problem of violence and violence with guns in the United States. They're rare and they're most most killings with guns are done with handguns. Eighty percent of gun deaths are sixty. About two thirds are suicides. About eighty sure. percent are done with handguns. So when it comes down to it, the there's a political issue here. It's like everything else. It's unpopular. People get elected because they don't want they 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 run on the basis. I don't want. I'm not going to take your right to have a gun away. And on the other side, let's be honest, there are a lot of people who actually do want to take your right to have a gun away. And that is, everybody has to be honest about this. You either believe and hold that the, uh, the, the right of a citizen to own a firearm is a fundamental political right, or you don't. If you don't, then you don't really care. You're just looking for ways to get rid of it. And if you do, then you're looking for ways not to get rid of it. So that's really what we have here. And when it comes down to the nitty gritty of legislation, that's what we argue about. And people get elected because you haven't persuaded people that you really should do away with the Second Amendment. Jim, can I ask, I mean, if, as you say, the school shootings like this one are not really a picture of, of they don't really reflect sort of the overall image of, of the reality of gun violence in the United States. Certainly they are a kind of gun violence that seems pretty unique to the United States. And so, you know, I, I sympathize with people who, especially as we see police forces increasingly militarized, uh, who who find it uncomfortable to contemplate, you know, completely disarming the general population and yet, you know, having police officers uh, roaming small towns with, with tanks and cannons. But I don't I, I also sympathize with people who look at what what you can do with one of these high powered weapons in, in just a few minutes. It does. Ha- you know how often it happens compared to, you know, gun homicides or domestic violence using handguns, I, I, you know, it might it, the ratio there might be small, but like they're big and dramatic because dozens of children die. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, th- I agree that it's complicated, but I wonder, is is there an answer uh, that it comes in the form of the types of weapons that that are allowed to be sold to the general public? Or is there some other answer? Because. I don't really like to just say, yes, it's very sad. It's dramatic. We can't let it, you know, somehow we shouldn't let ourselves become emotional about a school shooting where 19 children die and two teachers, you know? 
Well, I agree 100 percent. But it, it is the case that, uh, you know, from my point of view, what I say is that when you see something like this, the school shooting, the Buffalo shooting, you know, the guy who went to the church in Laguna and shot people up. You know, I wrote my article in 2017 with the Las Vegas shooter, the guy in a hotel room shooting people from. I remember Charles Whitman. I was alive <laughs> when uh, yeah, that scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, so, sure. In fact, I think events, that's still the worst attack on a school in American history. Well, actually, th- th- uh, that was he was at the University of Texas Tower and he was taken down by a policeman and an armed citizen who yeah. went up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, yep. the worst school, I think, in American history school massacre was done in Bath, Michigan, I think. And it was with explosives. That's what not I was with, thinking of. Not with yeah. not with uh, not with a gun. That's not right. with guns. And you had 86 people killed in Nice, France with a truck. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, the prop, what I'm saying here is that we do have a huge problem and if something is going on, but the, the more, the, the real danger here is what I call, and for lack of a better word, a state of mind. Once someone's in a state of mind where they're going to go kill 25 people, this guy, as Charles Whitman did, Charles Whitman killed his mother and his wife before he went to the uh, university. This guy killed his grandmother. Uh, you know, once you have people in a homicidal, suicidal state of mind, they're going to pick up whatever weapon they have and they're going to find a weapon and use it. OK, so what I'm saying is when 86 people are killed with a truck in Nice, we say, oh, we have a problem with truck violence. <laughs> we have a problem of violence and of and of, of pathological, obsessive violence in the United States in a way that we don't have elsewhere. And I think that this is asking whether we're going to have assault rifle bans. Assault rifle is a completely, you know, stylistic thing, whether it has a thumbhole stock or whether it has a pistol grip or it has nothing to do with the lethality of the weapon. People think that semi-automatic rifles are automatic rifles. Assault rifle, AR-15 style rifles do not, are not automatic weapons are illegal already. Okay. It fires one bullet per trigger pull, just like a handgun. Uh, so, you know, really, if you look at the we have to focus on the problem, the problem of we have a culture of violence all around and we have a culture that's that's breeding a kind of psychopathic violence that we really should look at. That's not going to be solved by an assault weapons ban, which doesn't allow you to have a 10, 10 round magazine. Not going to be solved by that. The New York Times, Jim, uh, today said that or had an article that showed every statement made by every Republican senator since the shooting about about guns or about the shooting, as well as that senator's NRA legislative grade. Almost all of them had A's or A pluses, and only six of them support any kind of legislation at all, as I said in the intro. Is it possible, do you think, for Joe Biden to initiate any restrictions with the issuance of executive orders, or are we past that? I know that Bill Clinton tried that in the 1990s, but perhaps everything that's been done uh, or that could be done has been done. You know, they're, 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 you know, whether we like it or not, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that we have a second amendment, but a lot of people don't, but we do. And it's been clearly stated by the, uh, interpreted by the Supreme court to mean that individuals have the right to own firearms. So any kind of serious restriction on that is going to be, uh, you know, challenged in court and it's going to, so you have that issue in the United States of America. And, you know, if you want to, Go after it, go after it, but acknowledge what you're doing there. Uh, and it's going to be hard to do. 
because when you put that out there, it becomes clear where this is going, if it's going to go that way. So when people say we need gun control, gun, gun, what does it mean? You know, background checks, all for it. You know, sure. automatic weapons are illegal. <laughs> uh, so but, you know, assault rifle stuff, when you start looking at that, you start seeing this is just uh, aesthetics. It really is. And or, you know make something that, that has a folding stock or not, or a thumb hole grip. Really, those are the definitions of assault rifle. It has nothing to do with how lethal it is. Uh, so people start saying, oh, you're really going to take away the, the uh, what's really, a, at this point, a normal, per, normal personal rifle. So you're going to have, uh, first of all, the Republicans are going to make a big deal of it, and they'll win on the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll, you know, the, at least within the Republican Party, certainly, they'll win their primaries, and they'll and you, for any issue that Joe Biden wants, is he going to get rid of the filibuster, first of all? You know, well, OK, you know, Joe Manchin has has this gun control bill, but the background check bill, but he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. So nothing's going to happen. Right. So th- I don't think it's going to go anywhere legislatively. I want to talk to you also about uh, this uh, Michael Sussman trial. The Hill had a terrific piece explaining why this trial is so much more complicated and important than it seems at first glance. They note that Sussman told the FBI he was acting alone. The FBI reported through its channels that he was acting alone, but that he charged the Clinton campaign for the meeting with the FBI. That makes it pretty clear to me that he was lying to the FBI when he was when he said he was acting alone. And that's uh, very simply a a felony. Uh, But the Hill notes that the jury is a Washington, D.C. jury where Hillary Clinton got 92% of the vote against Donald Trump in 2016, and maybe that jury just isn't going to want to convict somebody who was trying to get Hillary Clinton elected president. Uh, What do you think about that? It was an interesting article Uh, and a a curious uh, logic, and there's there's a political logic to it, I guess. But that article, as you say, if this guy charged the campaign for the hours in which he was talking to the FBI about this. He's got no defense against the lie charge. Okay, so that article was saying essentially that uh, you know it was significant that the defense decided to go for a jury trial in this case, and that indicated to the to the author, I think it was Kevin Brock, that they were trying to persuade because that's a possibility. Get it? Get a reasonable doubt on enough of the jurors in blue state or you know Washington D.C. Blue Washington D.C. on the basis of their sympathy for Clinton. And Mook's testimony was interesting. Yeah, Clinton did tell us to go to the media with this because she was trying to get ahead of the FBI (laughs) because we didn't trust the FBI because of what Comey did. And what Comey did to her was not good. That was, a you know, getting up and giving that. You don't come up as a prosecutor and say, oh, we're not going to prosecute him, but we really think there might be something. You don't do that. <laughs> so, and then turn around and reopen it. So that was kind of nasty to Clinton, absolutely. So uh, they're they're betting on the trying to get a couple of jurors to say, well, we don't care that he lied to the FBI because you know he was just trying to uh, uh, mitigate what the damage that Clinton had been done by been done to Clinton by the FBI itself. Yeah. And I think it's a stretch. But, you know, it's, it's, they're rolling the dice on that. If that's what they're doing, that's an interesting strategy and maybe the only strategy they have because they're really not contesting the charge then. <laughs> they're looking for jury nullification. That's exactly <laughs> what they're doing. They're looking for jury nullification. Five very conservative Republican senators, 
Josh Hawley of Missouri, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Rick Scott of Florida, Rick Langford of Oklahoma, and Rand Paul of Kentucky sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security this week demanding copies of all communications regarding the formation of the Disinformation Governance Board and about how its leader was chosen, uh, Nina Jankowitz. They said that they intended to continue oversight of the board even while it is quote-unquote paused. Is this just a political stunt, or is it something that the Biden administration should be worried about? Well, the Biden administration should be worried about political stunts. (laughs) 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 Everybody's everybody's worried about political stunts. Uh, But, you know, there's a real issue here, and this is, you know, it's not gone away. It's been paused. And they hired someone else to come in and and, and do some more study of it. See, I thought Uh, I was the only one who noticed that. Yeah, this has not gone away. (laughs) Uh, And so I hope that the pressure stays on this. You know, I mean, this whole concept of disinformation governance is so phony and dangerous. Uh, And... You know, they, they contradict themselves all the time. Oh, with this information, this information was all about, you know, human trafficking. It had nothing to do with, with the, 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 you know, the dissidents at home. And then, oh, but all the criticism of it was disinformation. <laughs> <laughs> the criticism of Nina Jankowitz and the disinformation is exactly the kind of disinformation that we want to get rid of. Yeah. Which is essentially criticism of America, of government policy. So, you know, they're, they're trying to hide and they don't even possibly they really don't even understand themselves what they're doing here. It, it, it really is that much epistemological confusion around at this point. So, you know, uh, political stunt or not, I'm glad to see uh, uh, pressure, pressure keep up on this. Let's talk about Hunter Biden for our last five minutes. Um, Hunter Biden, and this is going to sound nuts, but has hired an A-list Hollywood entertainment attorney to represent him with regard to the the laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop. The attorney, Kevin Morris, has been circulating slides uh, that counter the Republican narrative that Hunter Biden's business dealings were a conflict of interest for his father as a senator, as vice president, and maybe even as president. Morris has an army of attorneys, those were his words, and investigators all around the country including, he said, on the ground in Delaware, <laughs> um, working on this new narrative. What, can you speculate as to what we might expect to see here? On, on his own, Hunter Biden has put himself in a tough position just because he's, you know, he's a crackhead and he lost the laptop and the laptop was damning and uh, he's, he's put himself in a tough place. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great show. Uh, this is going to be a show. Pass the popcorn, hookers and blow. And, you know, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, but really what I think, you know, what he's trying to do, this lawyer is great, great, another great show, you know, and they should, this, this is an episode of if, if anything that should be on, on South Park, it's Hunter Biden. Uh, <laughs> True. And, uh, well, I think this is really, uh, you know, he's he's uh, signaling that they're going to uh, fight or distract from any Republican attempt. The real danger here is the investigation into whether uh, into the money that Hunter Biden got from Ukraine and whether any of that went to Joe Biden. Hunter Biden said to his sister, I think I got to give I give half my money to, to Joe. Right. 
he, he acknowledged that Joe was essentially tithing him for half of his mm-hmm. any money he got. So did that, that, that include the money from Ukraine? That's going to be a, a centerpiece if the Republicans control houses of Congress. They're going to investigate that. And it's very dangerous. So this is going to provide an alternate uh, distraction for that. The story of whether, you know, this laptop was passed around and cloned and someone added something to it on, on the way, you know, mm-hmm. it was passed around various uh, Trump supporters. And uh, this is that's what they're going to try to do here. And uh, good luck to them. Uh, you know, it's going to be more more spectacle of pro- pro- congressional investigations yeah. about, uh, well, the, the issue of whether Biden got money on Joe Biden got money on this is is a real issue. And they're going to have to try and go for that. Uh, otherwise, it's hookers and blow. <laughs> One last question. Um, one of the things that Republicans have had some limited success with over the last year or two is to simply ignore Democratic investigations or to hold them off until the political immediacy has passed. Do you think it might be possible for Hunter Biden and his attorneys to just refuse to testify before Congress to take to the courts and then just delay until the issue is moot? It's a great strategy. File up, get involved in a lawsuit, get involved in a, a litigation, and then say, I can't discuss ongoing litigation. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's a very good strategy. I don't know why they wouldn't. Uh, they certainly should. Uh, and that's probably going to be, I would guess, I would surmise that's going to be a large part of their strategy. Mm-hmm. Let's, we can, you can, you know, we'll, we'll throw out this alternate, you know, uh, South Park story or, you know, people running around uh, with a, with the laptop and where it came from and who, who sent it to whom. And yeah, he lost it twice. Yeah. So he lost another laptop with his, with his psychiatrist. Creep. And, uh, we'll, uh, on the other hand, say we can't really talk about it, uh, in, in Congress because it's ongoing, ongoing litigation. Smart, try yeah. smart tactic, I think. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh who joined us from, uh, you're in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in New York, he's the editor of thepolemicist.net. Check it out. It's a fun site. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing what is going to be an an ongoing conversation about guns, gun violence, and gun control in the United States and getting a couple of different perspectives on it during the course of just one show. Joining us for this conversation is Patrick Banchfield. He's a journalist, critic, and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research. His book, Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence, will appear from Verso next year. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. Although you know that phrase is strained under the circumstances, but I'm glad to talk. I know, I know. But yeah, we're we're really glad that you could join us. And of course, you know, like everyone else, we are revisiting the gun rights that exist in this nation and whether we should restrict them in some way following the horrible shooting on Tuesday. And I was wondering if we could start off uh, by asking you to give us a sense of where the public is on gun control and what kind of restrictions the public uh, supports or rejects. 
Yeah. So I think the, the broad historical background to just sort of stipulate is, is that over the course of the past couple decades, Americans in general have developed a more like and this is just the polls speaking. This isn't like my personal. I'm just reading the Reuters, right, Ipsos, et cetera, right. right? Are generally more like welcoming of the idea of guns in general, right? So like a, a majority of Americans, even been polled very recently, will say that they think guns make people safer and that guns will defend you, people against mass shootings, right? So that's just like sort of that's a part of a longer term trajectory that's changed a great deal uh, from where it was, say, in you know the 70s or 80s. It's worth saying, though, that when it comes to specific policy interventions that would go under like the rubric of what we call gun control, whether that be stuff like um, universal background checks, closing the what's called sometimes referred to as the loophole of like private sales at gun shows mm-hmm. or uh, red flag laws for blocking access to uh, or, or holding guns to, to people who are accused of domestic assault or, or have, you know, various restraining orders, et cetera. A majority of Americans do support that. Like anywhere between like 70 and the upper 80 percentile will consistently, when polled, will consistently say that they want to, yes, they would like to consider bringing an assault weapons ban back. Yes, they mm-hmm. do support perhaps raising the age of uh, a, like a federal age restriction on buying firearms or, or long guns specifically from 18 mm-hmm. to 21, et cetera. So there is like a, you know, it's hard to pin down, but there does appear to be a majority, if not a supermajority of Americans in general are favorable, of course, a favorable attitude towards a whole battery of what has traditionally been called gun control measures. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, measures to restrict assault style weapons specifically? I mean, I we talk to people who say, look, this idea that there is an assault style weapon versus a, a handgun, this is sort of it, it's a distinction that isn't that isn't real, that isn't meaningful. I wonder what you make of that. And then also, you know, there, there was enough support for a, an assault weapons ban uh, that last lasted about 10 years, not that long ago. Uh, it sunsetted in, what, 2004? Yes. Uh, and I, I, I wonder why, you know, we haven't even been able to revive e- even something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, this is one of those things, too, where, where, where like the discourse around that we've that the U.S., the Americans have got going about like assault weapons is so mm-hmm. um, particularly for those people who are like coming at it from the outside is so incredibly perverse where it's like you have to have the credentials to define what a, I don't know, a, a semi-automatic rifle caliber carbine is versus, but sold mm-hmm. as a pistol versus, you know, it, it gets very, very pedantic and, and deliberately exhausting. Uh, it, it's worth saying that when, again, in, we refer to those polls, when people were generically asked, like, do you support a assault weapons ban without getting into the specifics of what that category necessarily entails, whether it be ammunition, mm-hmm. magazine size, length of stock, people will be mm-hmm. supportive of it. Um, historically speaking, yes, we have had an assault weapons ban, right? Uh, and we've had other previous gun control acts, uh, thinking most notably of, a pa- of an act passed in 68. Uh, and then there mm-hmm. was some other stuff in the 30s. And generally, there's public support for these things. Mm-hmm. The the issue is, is it, there are multiple issues here that are practical, there are issues that are technological, and then there's sort of like implications that are political and social, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the first is to say that, like, there are practical legalistic problems vis-a-vis defining what these things are. And if there's any one thing mm-hmm. American gun manufacturers are very, very good at doing, right, is 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 playing within the categories that the ATF, which is the, and the ATF is always constantly sort of playing catch up with this to get away with branding certain weapons as, you know, that are effectively an assault rifle, like to, to a person who doesn't play a lot of video games or deal with guns, it looks like an assault rifle, right. but it basically isn't, right? And so like right. there is some point at which like as a philosophical problem, there is no platonic ideal of what a 
assault rifle is. That said, mm-hmm. there are plenty of voices within like the, the gun rights community and lots of like tactical trainers and ex-military folks, people who have written entire gun buying guides, etc., who in the 1980s and 90s were perfectly comfortable calling assault rifles assault rifles. And there's a whole genealogy right. of like that. Um, when it comes to the practical hurdles, so assuming, we, and let's also say, like a lot of laws get legislated, even if legislators aren't entirely sure what constitutes the, the object that they're legislating, right? Like, right. Uh, uh, yeah, this is like uteruses and yes, exactly, tubes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like, like there, there are plenty of, of men specifically uh, on all sorts of levels of our government who have no idea like how a baby is formed, who are nonetheless mm-hmm. perfectly comfortable to like uh, to get involved in this. And you know, from the perspective of, of like a public person, right? I feel like individual citizens should have be under no obligation to credentialize themselves as like a firearms instructor when mm-hmm. it comes to like their desire to not get shot by an AR-15. It, it's like saying, mm-hmm. well, if, if you don't know the difference between a V6 and a V12, you you have no you, or you should have no say on whether or not you get hit by a car, right? It, it, it's right, absurd. Right. Um, but like, look, I, part of the thing to consider practically and then also historically here is one: there are a ton of these guns in circulation now, right? A lot of them have been rebranded as like modern sporting rifles, as a favored industry term. And while mm-hmm. the numbers aren't entirely clear, they're in the high millions. It wouldn't surprise me if there were more than ten out there. Uh, and so they're all over the place. And you know, there will be legislative and enforcement concerns about how exactly would these like you know be brought back like would could would they even be brought back would we go the way we did in 94 where a lot of these guns were actually grandfathered in and thus became much more uh, lucrative on the secondary mm-hmm. market right because you could sell these things mm-hmm. if you own them if you bought them before the ban etc you know that basically incentivized ownership but the other thing to say here which is sort of broader is that like Historically speaking, every single time there has been a major federal level gun control law, and this includes the assault weapons ban in 94, and it includes uh, the gun control acts of 68, et cetera, it's always part of a broader tough on crime package, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, part of how a lot of liberals buy onto that is by being wedded to like omnibus crime crime bills of which the idea of a gun ban of some sort is like a a cherry on top or it allows them to get over their concerns. So so like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like. Under, under Joe Biden, who helped bring us the first assault weapons ban, like we've already voted to fund the police even more than they've ever been. Uh, so I don't know. Like, it, it, yeah, possible I mean, that's that happen. I don't know. That's the paradox that I that I want to ask you about. And it's like I, I sort of asked generally is militarization of the police hindering efforts at gun control. Then, you know, you make it very specific. It's very odd to be trying to. Uh, On one hand, you know, in the same sort of package of legislation, sending a bunch of funding to police, which will probably be used for for weapons upgrade for bigger and better and badder hardware, while you are also uh, restricting those kinds of firearms in the general population. And I do wonder, you know, I, I wonder if it is if it is even possible to seriously contemplate gun control for the general public uh, if we can't contemplate gun control for police. Thank you so much for putting it in those terms, because that's something that discourse doesn't <laughs> normally do, right? Like, and, and it's it's really, and just to think about that for, for a few minutes, because like, yeah, these assault weapons, these quote unquote weapons of war, which America makes en masse more than any other nation on the planet, both and exports them all around the world, are also what we arm police on our streets with, right? So you hear a lot of legislators, particularly Democrats, be like, these guns don't, these weapons of war don't belong on our streets, but then mm-hmm. they'll sign funding packages for cops to buy them. Or in another example of how like, a lot of this discourse silos things off. We have these programs like the 1033 program or various civilian military assistance programs, et cetera, where actual battlefield weapons are sent back stateside to be used by police. And, you know, 
I, when police are carrying these things, when police are, 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 are going full tactical punisher badass stuff, like mm-hmm. you can see a large segment of the population being like, well, I want to have what they have because it's cool. And that's a major mm-hmm. thing that that's a major market driver. In fact, you know, there have been a bunch of mass shootings uh, carried out with a Smith and Wesson M&P 15 and M&P and that's Sarah 15 variant stands for military and police. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to have that. And then also there are a lot of people who despise the police for perhaps very justifiable reasons or at least scared of the police. And they're like, well, if the police have that, I want to have it, too, because I'm really scared of the police. Right. So mm-hmm. there is this the overall trajectory there is both normalizing the presence of these guns in the public square, in the hands of authorities who are e- people either seek to emulate or be afraid of. And, you know, as, as, as the footage that's coming out of Uvalde right now shows, like. That town, of which you know, sixty percent of its budget was going to arming its police, right, right, to its mm-hmm. police department, to the special SWAT team that are all carrying their m force, et cetera. They weren't able to stop this. They appear to have actually made the situation worse. So, like on mm-hmm. some level, yeah, militarization is intimately bound up with this problem, as is like the U.S. arms industry more generally. And I think those are bigger even than institutions like the NRA or or, or other activist groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me ask you about the the NRA, because that was uh, what Joe Biden invoked when he was commenting first on this shooting, asking when we would work up the courage to confront lobbies. And like, I don't want to, you know, dismiss the historic role of the NRA in, um, you know, kicking up Second Amendment fervor, let's say. Uh, But in the last couple of years, it seems to have been in a complete shambles. And so I wonder, you know, what actually is the strength and the role of the NRA today? And, you know, even if it is a wreck at the moment, uh, you know, maybe it it did what it needed to do. Yeah, that's that's invoking the history and thinking about like what the NRA functionally does, not just for its own members or the causes it advances is really key, right? Like insofar as that, yeah, like the NRA has in recent years been caught up in a series of scandals that honestly uh, are are forcing comparisons long overdue to a whole other number of like right-wing grifter NGO organizations where money from donors is spent on suits and trips to Fiji and whatnot, right? Like it's, it's fully in that like Late decade, late imperial decadence, 501c3 space that, that we probably know and love from a whole lot of organizations. Um, but but it is ever since, particularly since the 70s, though the NRA has always been this in some form, the NRA has done a very savvy job in terms of its relationships with arms manufacturers. It's uh, the way it's essentially helped write a lot of the law, a legislation in terms of like basic civilian gun use, right? So in a lot of these states that do regulate, NRA regulate concealed carry. The courses that you take are are either named in law as NRA courses, or you have no choice but to take an NRA course because that's the only thing that's available. So, like they have this "quote unquote" mm-hmm. service dimension that's basically infiltrated the apparatus of legal concealed carry. But more than that, as a cultural organization, the NRA's rating system, when they rate various Congress people A, B, C, D, or E. F, I guess it doesn't go to E like that's a, mm-hmm. that does drive votes like that's a powerful imprimatur for people who want like a, a quick cheat sheet to vote to vote right on culture war issues. Right. Mm-hmm. So to the extent to which the NRA is capable of being like a, an organizing point or like an att- like a giant magnet or like a, an attractor for a whole subset of of other cultural war issue, issues and people who vote. In, in a way, it, it contributes in an ongoing way to an asymmetrical polarization on gun on, on gun issues, right? Where you know a, a small minority can impose its will against a broader majority. And by the same token, and this gets to the heart of your question here, I think if you look at the history of the NRA and you look at the history of 
the modern gun control movement in activist circles, as well as in legislation, there is a way in which the NRA does a lot of good for institutionalized liberal politicians and activist groups, right? They're the bad guys against whom gun control figures can consistently fundraise and call out votes. So there's a kind Mm -hmm. of symbiotic, you could even say dialectical relationship between the NRA and a majoritarian view of what gun control is, and they kind of need one another. So so sort of perversely, Mm -hmm. if the NRA may have been falling apart, which it has been, it may well be Joe Biden's constantly talking about how bad it is that may be the best thing to happen to the NRA and also to donor gun control, friendly gun control donors among the Democrats. Yeah. And um, it's it's incredible how much these these situations echo each other, you know, like sort of you, you you've got to have a Trump to fundraise against, you know, you've got to have you've got to have a, a boogeyman uh, to to you know, garner support for your side. And you see it, you know, it, you see it in foreign policy, right? You see it in domestic policy. You see it. Uh, it's it, it gets really frustrating because it ends up just sort of being tennis, tennis happening above our heads as people, you know, uh, living dead down here below in regular land, wait for anything to actually change. Patrick, we only have a, a couple more minutes. And so I wanted to ask you about this uh, Supreme Court decision that's expected in the next couple of weeks on a challenge to a New York gun law that limits the ability of people to carry guns in some public places. Uh, the expectation is that the court will knock down the law and that all will re- that remains is how much ability will be left to states to restrict uh, carrying firearms just anywhere. And and I wonder how significant you think this particular decision could be. Yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure, like how significant that will be in the sense in which if the, even if they strike this, even if they punt on this one, another you know, there is an apparatus of people producing test cases for the Supreme Court on this issue. Right. Mm-hmm. But like I do, th- I do suspect if I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if I were to bet, I bet they will strike that down. And it's pretty clear that from a long term perspective, the American right has been pushing for decades to liberalize as in make more available concealed carry rights around the country. And that's it, the analogies between this and Roe and the, the dismantling of Roe are very helpful are, are mm-hmm. clarifying. Right. For decades. On every possible level across multiple states, groups like ALEC, the NRA, and other activist groups have put out legislation to normalize concealed carry, to increase and uh, the availability of concealed carry access, to produce things like carrying uh, like completely uh, uh, regulation-free concealed carry, what they call constitutional carry, etc. And that's been going on for decades and is ubiquitous in most states, uh, with a few salient exceptions. And now here comes a court case, which basically is going to ratify the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, if, it, if they do kick it, if they do decide, you know, in the favor of people who want to pursue national white career carry, concealed carry, where that's going to go is going to be, you know, possibly some sort of federal reciprocal concealed, concealed carry apparatus or, you know, that and or a completely Vercocta mess among uh, municipalities and states trying to preempt and work their way around it. But the, the analogies to Roe in terms of like, uh, well, you know, what a majority of Americans actually want versus what a small minority can do when they act mm-hmm. in the long term are pretty chilling. Yeah, it feels like there is a much longer philosophical and political discussion to be had on on these two reflections of each other. But we don't have time for it in this hour. That was journalist and author Patrick Blanchfield. Patrick, really appreciate your time. Do you want to tell our listeners anywhere uh, they can go to find some of your work? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Pat, as Pat Blanchfield if they want to yell at me. Uh, I, I write for all sorts of outlets and post that there. And I would encourage people to check out the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, which does uh, uh, university-style liberal arts classes for affordable prices uh, via Zoom and in numerous cities around the country for non-traditional audiences. So, yeah, we'd love to see one of the classes or just to check out the work we do. Thank you so much again. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Last week, we told you about the murder by Israeli troops of Al Jazeera journalist and Palestinian-American Shireen Abu Akla. We said that Abu Akla appeared to have been murdered in cold blood by an Israeli soldier who shot her in the face while she was walking through a refugee camp. Her producer was shot in the back and critically wounded. You'll also recall that Israeli police even attacked her funeral, causing pallbearers to drop her casket. The Israeli government has refused to initiate an investigation into the killing, saying, alternatively, that Abu Akla was conducting some sort of a criminal operation, that the troops were acting in self-defense, or that Abu Akla was acting in a menacing way of some sort. Now, CNN has unearthed new video evidence and eyewitness testimony showing that Abu Akla was indeed murdered in cold blood. In other news, states across the country continue to make it more and more difficult for third parties to make it onto the ballot. The Green Party, for example, has been struck off New York state ballots. Where's the threat? And as we told you yesterday, very little of the money appropriated by Congress for the Ukraine war actually goes to Ukraine. Most of it goes to U.S. defense contractors like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Boeing to keep the war economy going. Those companies then send overpriced and prepaid weapons and weapons systems to Ukraine. We're joined by Margaret Kimberly. She's the editor and a senior columnist at the Black Agenda Report and an activist on peace and justice issues. Margaret, welcome back. We're glad to have you. It's been a long time. Margaret, when Saudi Crown, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi murdered and dismembered, the Post wrote about it and demanded justice literally every single day. The Post's army of opinion writers kept the story going for a year, and the murder had a direct effect on U.S.-Saudi relations. Well, Shireen Abu Akhla was an American citizen and she was executed by Israeli soldiers. There will be no investigation. There's no fallout. There's no effect on U.S.-Israeli relations. Why the dichotomy? Well, um, we're, we're talking about the Washington Post here. That's a, that's a D.C. establishment, um, the Washington Post that's now owned by Jeff Bezos. So the Washington Post is allowed 
to uh, criticize and will be heard. Uh, the narrative will not be disappeared. But um, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh was a Palestinian. Now, she was also a U.S. citizen, something which is yes. not mentioned nearly enough. But she was killed by Israel. And anyone killed by Israel is either smeared or ignored. Uh, Israel has killed other journalists. They killed a, uh, a, a BBC cameraman some years ago. They've killed other Palestinian journalists who usually don't make the news. The IDF, they even uh, uh, ran over Rachel Corey with the tractor and killed her. Yes. But they were killed by Israel, uh, America's friend. Um, and a uh, the Palestinians do not have um, uh, friends of equal standing in our society. That is to say, of the establishment uh, who are listened to by corporate media. And so uh, the Washington Post can get a hearing, um, although eventually, um, ultimately, nothing happened because Saudi Arabia is a, a major client state of the U.S. But Miss um, uh, Abu Akleh can't get. Um, uh, rarely uh, uh, did not receive the attention it deserved. And this footage, while I'm glad to see it, it's coming um, a little bit late. I'm uh, guessing it was available yeah. earlier on, but I suppose better late than never. We saw a video of Israeli police officers attacking the pallbearers at Shireen Abu Akleh's funeral with truncheons. Um, they, they beat them severely. And at one point, the pallbearers actually dropped the, the casket. The entire funeral was disrupted by the violence of the Israeli police. Uh, tear gas was was fired. Yet this was a one day story in the United States. Nobody seemed to care except those of us who believe in Palestinian rights. So I, I ask you again, where's the outrage? Why do we allow the Israelis to get away with things like this? As you noted, Shireen Abu Akleh was an American citizen. Yes, but it does, you know, if you're an American and you're killed by Israel, well, good luck to you. Uh, yes, they did disrupt the funeral. They did prevent she was a Christian, uh, but they did not right. uh, allow Muslims into the church. They actually asked people if they were Christians or Muslims to try to restrict the, uh, uh, Outrageous. No the number of people. Um, uh, who came to uh, to bear witness and to uh, um, to pay their uh, respects and actually, I mean, to kill somebody and then beat the pallbearers so that they, uh, I think the coffin almost touched the ground. It was quite an effort that they made. I'm sure they were determined not to let that happen. But but it was a horrible thing to see. But it's limited, and the, you know, the media don't even defend themselves when it comes to Israel. Uh, about a year ago. The Israelis destroyed a building in Gaza they, uh, where the AP was housed. The Associated Press You're exactly was, right. was housed. They claimed that uh, uh, there was also that Hamas was uh, – that's the boogeyman word – that Hamas was also in the building without any proof whatsoever. But the AP, a powerful media organization, uh, didn't um, uh, respond in the way that one would have thought. Their response seemed rather timid to me. The amount of uh, – uh, outrage, which um, uh, should have been expressed by them and on their behalf, was very muted. But that's um, uh, a bigger problem of corporate media working uh, in collusion, I would call it, with the state. And ultimately, they will back down. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I, I, I'd like to get into that uh, in a little bit more depth in a, in a moment. Um, 
You tweeted recently that third parties are being stricken from the ballots in, in different states across America. In the 2020 election, and to me, this is this is particularly dramatic. In the 2020 election, for example, the Green Party was on the ballot in only 30 states. That was down from 45 states in 2016. In New York, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo pushed the Greens off the ballot, and this was the craziest thing, to make room for a ballot initiative. Like, why don't you just make the ballot longer? <laughs> um, what, what are the big parties so afraid of, uh, Margaret? In, in, it just seems to me that they work so hard and spend so much money to keep third parties from gaining ballot access when those third parties are only getting but 1% or 2%. What are they so afraid of? They're afraid of democracy. They want to deprive people of a choice. You know, in the 2016 election, when uh, uh, Trump uh, defeated Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College, and it was extremely uh, close, uh, the Green Party was was blamed. Uh, first of all, this whole idea of anybody right. except the losing party being blamed is absurd. But this is the level of propaganda <laughs> that is pushed by uh, the Democrats. They're never responsible for their defeats. Um, and uh, after raising a billion dollars, after demonizing Trump, uh, they failed to get out the votes in uh, swing states. They're called swing states for a reason, Hillary. But at any rate, they failed. <clears throat> Excuse me. And demonizing the Greens was their way of excusing their failure, pointing fingers, uh, keeping um, even those Democrats who are more left leaning, trying to keep them in line. And so, of course, the Green Party was turned into the boogeyman. And this was, and I doubt it that um, even ac across the country, that Greens are responsible for Democrats losing. But, you know, why waste an opportunity uh, to shut yep. off debate? Why waste an opportunity to kill even a tiny bit of a, a left-wing uh, narrative? So here in New York, we have a less than a week. We have until uh, Memorial Day to uh, get 45,000 more signatures uh, to get back on the ballot. They changed the standard for ballot access and wow. uh, in significantly increased the number of uh, um, uh, signatures needed to get uh, back uh, on the ballot. Uh, they changed. It's a bit arcane, but uh, they raised the threshold. It used to be if you had someone on the ballot who got 50,000 votes in a gubernatorial race, your ballot, uh, you had yeah. a ballot line. And they changed it to a much higher uh, uh, number for the last presidential election, which would have required the Greens to double the number of votes in wow. New York State. So we have to start all over again, getting a huge number of uh, signatures in an effort to uh, stay, to, to get back on the ballot. But this is happening across the country, they don't like democracy. Uh, they do not want people to have a choice. And why not kick uh, uh, another party while mm -hmm. they're down and eliminate the choice altogether? You know, this is particularly egregious because it's New York. Um, New York is famous for having a whole bunch of parties on the ballot. They have the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the Working Families Party, the Rent is Too Damn High Party, <laughs> whole bunch of different pa parties. But usually those minor parties endorse major party candidates. So the Democrat will also have the working uh, families party nomination mm -hmm. and will have the liberal party nomination. But the Greens are different. The Libertarians are different. They, they run their own slate of candidates. 
And the Democrats just will not accept the notion that somebody might vote green who, if the greens weren't on the ballot, might say, oh, well, the greens aren't on the ballot. I might as well vote for the Democrat because that vote is as good as a Democratic candidate voting for himself. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Working Families Party, frankly, in my opinion, is phony. It's basically just Democrats and they like Democrats. They like to it's not a separate slate of uh, candidates. And so they get to, you know, get this progressive credential, which most of them don't excuse me, don't deserve to have. Uh, But you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, The libertarians were also kicked off the ballot in the same way. Um, But uh, but yeah, they they do this in order to punish those of us who uh, dare to stray from the fold and uh, to uh, uh, protect their actually they're not even protecting their candidates the number of no. uh, votes is um, is so small but it just shows you the uh, I'll use the word corruption that we have in our political system that uh, uh, the duopoly um, uh, is frankly quite proud of. And uh, so there's a a court case. We haven't gotten uh, any traction with the court case, but we're being deprived. There are thousands of New Yorkers who are deprived, frankly, of their voting rights because they want to vote for Greens. And had they left the rule alone, they would still be able to. Those of us who want to be registered as Green, now we're like an other because there's no uh, ballot line. So they're hoping to disappear us, but that's not going to happen. And, And by the way, you know, I'm not going to vote for a Democrat I don't like because there's no Green Party line. Uh, and exactly. So, and thousands of other people will do the same. So it's just a naked show of force. Exactly right. Another ongoing complaint is the fact that third parties don't have access to presidential debates. We're old enough to remember the League of Women Voters sponsoring prof- uh, presidential debates where independent presidential candidates were invited. So we got to hear the the ideas of Ralph Nader and John Anderson, even George Wallace, for what that's worth. Are those days gone forever, do you think, now that the two parties control the presidential debates? Are we ever going to see an independent or a third party uh, in a presidential debate again? I, I doubt it very much. I hate to say that. But uh, no, they The League of Women Voters was the entity that should have continued to sponsor presidential debates. But now that they're controlled by the Democrats and the Republicans, they don't want – that's their fear of both parties. Uh, The Democrats um, uh, want to keep people from voting green, but Republicans also have a problem here Mm -hmm. because there are many people who may be independently minded. They might – ordinarily vote for a Republican or uh, a Democrat, but if they heard um, uh, another voice, they might vote for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what happened when Bill Clinton won in 92. And I'm blanking on the man's name from Texas, who was a third party. Thank you so much. I could see his face and hear his voice, but couldn't think of his name. Ross Perot got millions of votes. He sure did. uh, and help Bill Clinton get into office. So, you know, none of them want to take a chance. Uh, and they, they, speaking of collusion again, Democrats and Republicans work in collusion on a variety of issues, and they certainly do on restricting democracy. To Absolutely sure right. that they are the ones who always have power. 
you are absolutely right. And that's something we should stress here. This is this is not a partisan issue. This is the Democrats and the Republicans working together to to make it so that we don't have an electoral choice. They're they're working together to ensure this duopoly. Um, Before we get on to uh, other issues like weapons and Ukraine and things like that, I want to ask you about an organization that's important both to you and to me, and that's Consortium News. Uh, You and I are both on the board of Consortium News. I'm very proud to be associated with Consortium. I'm sure that you are, too. Uh, I think that Robert Perry was a visionary. He was the founder of the organization. And Joe Loria does an amazing job as the editor in chief. But Consortium News is under really unprecedented attack. Uh, And it's under attack because it allows those of us who write for the organization to write about whatever's on our mind, to take whatever position we want to take. There is no editorial line at Consortium News. If, if there's something that's bothering me in policy and I want to write about it, I can write about it. And as a result, and we've talked about this on the show, uh, PayPal first froze Consortium News's account and then seized the money that was in the account. And I'll add that they did it the day before payday, which really threw a wrench into my life for a, a week. Um, they finally, they finally released the money because uh, of a threat that we would join a class action suit against PayPal. They gave us the money back, but but the PayPal account was frozen forever. Do you see this as a one-off, or do you see this as an attack by corporatists? the corporate media to squelch independent voices? Sure. The corporate media want to squelch independent voices and the state um, wants to squelch independent voices. And despite the fact that um, uh, the number of readers and listeners that um, uh, that we have in uh, Consortium News and uh, Black Agenda Report and other outlets, they are terrified that people will hear a different narrative. Uh, everything they do depends upon silence, depends upon acquiescence. It depends upon keeping people ignorant of uh, what the state is up to. And, uh, you know, in these corporate entities, PayPal, they did it to WikiLeaks, didn't they? Um, uh, they took yeah, they sure uh, or did. closed WikiLeaks accounts uh, and made it impossible, almost impossible for WikiLeaks to get uh, donations. So I'm sure they did this on um, uh, behalf of these uh, uh, liberal censors, and it's the liberals who want to censor more than anybody. Uh, so they will um, uh, use money, <clears throat> excuse me, and get PayPal uh, to uh, stop allowing donations or to uh, even in this case to temporarily take money. Uh, they will, there's this new, uh, Twitter has changed its rules about, uh, what they will consider a valid story. And that it's all very, it's all very vague and deliberately so, uh, so then they can downrank you, um, delete your tweets, prevent you from tweeting all because they are on shaky ground and everything from Ukraine to the way the budget is determined. It all depends on people not knowing what's going on. So anybody, no matter how small who uh, dares 
to uh, to violate uh, those rules, who dares to give people another option uh, is under attack. And that's what they're doing to Consortium News right now. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I want to talk about defense contractors, uh, if I could. So many Americans are under the mistaken impression that when Congress appropriates funds for Ukraine, that there's somehow a transfer of cash. And that's not the case at all. The money goes to defense contractors, American defense contractors, who then ship overpriced weapons and weapon systems to Ukraine. And in the meantime, a lot of people are getting very rich here in Washington. Do you think that that's always been the plan? It's no secret that since 9-11, we've, we've now uh, ha- had more millionaires per capita created in the D.C. area than anywhere else in America, including Silicon Valley. Do you think that was always the plan? Well, I did not know that factoid about more millionaires per capita in Washington, but I am not surprised. And yes, that's and that's the way of the system uh, runs. They, you know, talk to us about democracy, but uh, behind the scenes, there's wheeling and dealing, and uh, uh, politicians all get together and make sure these uh, defense contractors get everything they want. I recall one of the CEOs was asked in 2020 who he wanted to win the presidential election, and he essentially said he didn't care because he knew they didn't were going to be fine. So, sure. uh, you know, and if you go to Washington, I uh, I noticed they have ads in the subway and every and everywhere for Raytheon yes. or McDonald Douglas. I mean, mm-hmm. it tells you it's a company town. It tells you what the real deal is. So, no, it's not surprising that uh, there are more uh, millionaires per capita. And so the system, it's a cash cow. Uh, so money for Ukraine, they'll, there's all this uh, war propaganda about, uh, you know, Ukraine, uh, uh, virtuous Russia, evil, Zelensky, the leader of leaders, but it's all to keep that money flowing. Uh, Most of that $40 billion, almost all of it is going to defense contractors. It's not going to help people who are, you know, been um, uh, displaced by the war. It's going to those people whose um, advertisements you see. Um, I I recently read that Boeing is moving its headquarters from Washington State to uh, Washington. Arlington, Virginia. Yes, mm-hmm. they did not want to, you know, lose out on uh, not one penny worth uh, worth of money. So it is yep. very, very uh, uh, corrupt. And defense spending is most of our discretionary uh, spending right now. And it's why we cannot have nice things in this country. Yeah, the new the new Boeing headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, in, in the neighborhood called Crystal City is one block from the McDonald Douglas headquarters and three blocks from the new Amazon headquarters. So they do that on purpose. Sure they do. And (laughs) Amazon is also a defense contractor, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Defense and intelligence. Yes, it is. I gave an interview to RT a few days ago and the interviewer asked me to explain the statement going around Washington that we will fight to the last Ukrainian. They They don't understand what that means. And I said that after 9-11, we transitioned into a permanent wartime economy. Without the hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend on weapons, we'll go into a recession and unemployment will skyrocket if we stop spending so much money on weapons. Um, This is a terrible economic model. How How do we get ourselves out of this mess after 20 years? Well, it's, you know, 9-11 was, um, I don't know 
what part of the story to believe, but I was recently reminded that the vote to uh, invade Afghanistan was just three days later. Uh, there was no time yes. and by design, That's true. no time for debate, no time to examine, no time to ask questions. Uh, people were in shock, and this was the moment to do it. And uh, only one member of Congress voted no, and from then on, it was it was Afghanistan, then it was Iraq, uh, then proxy wars, but it's always money going to these uh, people. And we, can, of course, could have a different economy. I mean, they changed to a war economy overnight. They could overnight change to an economy that actually did something for the people. Why? I mean, it's no secret that we we could have a a high speed rail system. China yes. has twenty thousand yes. miles of high speed rail. We have zero miles of high speed rail, and that could employ people. Obviously, fixing infrastructure could employ people. There's so many things that could um, uh, contribute to a healthy uh, economy, but that's not what they want. They um, uh, it's imperialism, and, and imperialism demands that the U.S. exert control, exert domination over. Over the rest of the world. And that, of course, means having a, a military that can bully other countries into bowing to America's will. Yeah. I've been reading a great deal lately about the possibility of conflict with China. As recently as this morning, a friend of mine sent me uh, uh, an article from a newspaper in Singapore saying, you know, we need to pay closer attention to what the Americans are saying about China because none of this is good. Uh, it almost sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy, to tell you the truth, beginning with Barack Obama's so-called pivot to Asia. Do you think it's too late to turn things around with China? It seems to me that we have or had an opportunity to work with the Chinese on a whole host of economic issues rather than to prepare for war. Our, our economies are utterly intertwined. So it seems to me that it would be better for everybody, not just in the United States and China, but in the whole world. Uh, for us to have a, a good and uh, and profitable relationship with the Chinese. Well, that's the contradiction. You know, China, everybody, uh, everybody loved China because China was going to supply us with cheap stuff. And right. uh, they were got into the WTO and that was supposed to be their role. Well, China built itself into an economic superpower and a rival to the U.S., and that became something that was unacceptable. And uh, But this is the contradiction that we are uh, trade partners, major trade partners, but at the same time, the U.S. wants to beat China down and contain China and all this nonsense. And they're trying to turn Taiwan into the next Ukraine. Uh, yes. the, the State Department, they, they changed. Changed uh, their website to, and it looked as though they were going uh, backing away from the 50-year-old One China policy. And uh, we see the same people whose ineptitude uh, created this uh, crisis in Ukraine. It blew up in their faces, and now they want to do the same thing in uh, in China. And it's very, very dangerous. And yes, of course it can be turned around, but there has to be the will to turn it around. And we have this administration whose foreign policy is a disaster, who's, they should all be fired uh, from Blinken and Victoria. 
Newland and Jake Sullivan should mm-hmm. all be fired. And I guess that means mm-hmm. Biden ought to fire himself. But uh, we have a president who was always a hawk, but apparently doesn't have any common sense. And uh, they seem to look at what's happened in Ukraine. They were going to crater Russia's economy. Well, the ruble has gone up in value and you can't hurt Russia without impoverishing the rest of the world. So we see this here uh, with the gas prices going up and food prices going up. And this is, of course, a a bigger burden to uh, poorer countries in the global south all over the world. So the same group of people who, uh, in addition to being dangerous ideologues, are frankly not very smart and are trying to do the same thing with China. But there's no political will. There there always used to be a a few people in Congress who would push back. No Democrats have pushed back. They all voted for $40 billion to go to Ukraine. None of them say anything about the dangers created in this misguided China policy. So um, we, you know, it is possible, but not with the people that we have. And one of the reasons, as we just discussed, one of the reasons they want to restrict the narrative, they want to strict restrict access uh, to uh, media is that if people knew how much danger they were in, uh, they would rise up, and that is the la- that is what we need actually. But that's the last thing that uh, they want to have happen. Margaret uh, Jamu Baraka said just a couple of days ago that if you're not reading Black Agenda Report, you don't know what is going on in the news. So tell our listeners where they can find more of your work. Sure. Uh, BlackAgendaReport.com. We have a new issue every Wednesday. We have uh, Black Agenda Radio, uh, which goes up on uh, on Fridays. So, and we're on Twitter, um, Black uh, uh, BLK Agenda Report, and uh, that's where I and uh, others write about national and international news. And uh, so far, so good. I guess I should knock wood. Yes, we are a leading voice on uh, on. The, the left, and we have the criticism to Indeed. prove it, which is something there you we're, go. <laughs> we're proud That's of. That's a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, Margaret Kimberly, thanks for joining us. Margaret is the editor and a senior columnist at the Black Agenda Report and an activist on peace and justice issues. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and be back, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're getting into a little bit of news about the economy and also our relationship with China as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken gave a speech this morning outlining U.S. policy toward that country. Again, naming China as a threat, but insisting we don't want conflict. So they're, they're a huge, huge threat, but we definitely don't want a Cold War with them. We want to cooperate when we're not actively working to subvert their ambitions. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about China's proposed um, cooperation agreement with island nations and the impact of export curbs on the global economy. Joining us for all of this is John Ross, 
He's an author and economist and a senior fellow of the Cheongyang Institute at Renmin University in China. Thanks for joining us again, John. Let's talk about Antony Blinken's uh, speech today. I continue to find it remarkable that the United States can simultaneously call China the most serious long-term challenge to the international order and yet also insist that we are not the ones inviting conflict with China and we intend, in fact, to cooperate and coexist. But as I was sort of thinking this through... I looked again at what Blinken was saying, and I wonder if Blinken is actually just telling the truth that China is a serious long term challenge to the international order that currently allows the United States to militarily and economically threaten and control much of the globe. And so I I wonder if you think Blinken is actually speaking truth and uh, if you could talk about what order China China might threaten. Well, China is not setting out to threaten any order. What it's, set, what it's setting out to do is to create a good standard of living for its people. I mean, China's transformation is the most remarkable of any major country that has ever been in the whole of history. I mean, and that's that's not a, a piece of exaggerated rhetoric. It's the truth. In, in 1949, when the People's Republic of China was created, China was almost the poorest country in the world. There were only 10 countries, according to the studies by Angus Madison, who's the top expert on such matters. There are only 10 countries in the world that are lower per capita GDP uh, than China. This is places like Mongolia. Um, now China is going to be, in uh, two years' time, a high-income economy by World Bank standards. That is, in a single lifetime, um, China will have gone from being almost the world's poorest country to to a high-income economy. It's not yet reached the level of the United States, but this is a total transformation of of these things. Okay, now there was an issue which is involved, which is China has got um, 18% of the world's population in it. So if China has a decent standard of living, it's going to be a very, very big economy. It's going to be the biggest economy in the world. Um, and it's going to be a very powerful country. Um, the United States will face the same problem later in this century with India, which also has a population of about 1.4 billion. And the idea of the United States that it's, what is its population, about 320 million, 330 million, that mark, it can't be the most powerful, well, it can't be the, the biggest economy in the world. China and India are going to overtake it. It's, it's always going to be very powerful because it's the third largest population of any country in the world. The United States is a very, very uh, large country. Um, but it can't be. Um, it can't hold down 1.4 billion people in China, and can't hold down 1.4 billion people in India. And the attempt to do so is very dangerous and threatens world peace. So, the sooner the U.S. adjusts to reality, the better. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about. Who gets credit, at least in the West, for this incredible development that you described? Because the United States is consistently trying to divorce China's prosperity from China's government, right? So Blinken in his speech says China's transformation is due to the talent, ingenuity, and hard work of the Chinese people, and also uh, an assist from this international order that the U.S. provides. And so, you know, that's what he uses to try to chide China for supposedly trying to undermine the international structures and arrangements that supposedly facilitated its prosperity. And I just wonder, you know, 
how should people view rhetorical tricks like this, right? So they try to say, oh, yes, we, look, we, we acknowledge and respect China's great success, except it somehow happened despite the, the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party and not because of it. Somehow it's, it's the people and uh, the rest of the world, never the Chinese government. Well, uh, actually, think about it. Um, Blinken is actually insulting the American people. I mean, mm. if we take the period since 1978, <laughs> China's economy is the fastest growing economy in the history of the world. Let's, let's not mm. even take that period. Let's just take the last uh, two years uh, during the pandemic. China's economy grew by 10.5% and the US economy grew by 2.1%. That is, China's economy grew five times as fast as the US. Does this, what is Blinken arguing? That the Chinese people are five times as talented and ingenious as the American people? I, right. I, I, I don't believe it for a minute. I think there are the same number of talented, the same proportion of the population of China is talented and ingenious and, and stupid and misheaded as in the United States and every other country in the world. So, as I say, strange enough, Blinken insists upon insulting the American uh, people, although he's not because he's trying to use false arguments, he doesn't realise it. But the difference is every country in the world has the same number of ingenious or the same proportion, not the same number, the same proportion mm. of talented, ingenious people, but, but they don't have the same governments. And China's policy and China's social structure and its government has been much more successful. So Blinken is mm. both insulting the American people and providing a completely fulsome uh, argument about the situation. Obviously, the big difference between US and China is the Chinese um, system of state and system of government. Mm hmm. I wonder, what do you make of the rest of, of his speech? It was, you know, it, it's described in media as this long-awaited speech, long-awaited, uh, you know, China policy from the Biden administration. I don't really, you know, when I looked at the, the prepared remarks that were released um, uh, ahead of his address, I didn't really see anything that jumped out as, as a, a marked change from our past China policy positions. But I wonder if, if you see anything that really jumps out uh, as as new in America's posture toward China. No, what I what, what jumps out is how Blinken's trying to conceal the United States' real position. Uh, mm -hmm. The United States by it has um, identified the China as a big rival, a big threat. Uh, it's doing everything possible to mobilize forces against China to undermine the One China policy, etc. Um, but it's trying to, uh, at the moment, it wants to conceal it this uh, slightly mm -hmm. because it's got itself in a big problem in the Ukraine. Um, yeah. They, the United States launched a proxy war in the Ukraine. Let's be quite clear. This was this whole war was set up by NATO and the United States. Um, mm -hmm. The United States was perfectly well aware that the attempt to bring Ukraine in, uh, into NATO was completely unacceptable to Russia because it places... Mm -hmm would place missiles within a few minutes flying time of Moscow. And the United States already made clear in the Cuban Missile Crisis that this was totally unacceptable to the United States to have missiles in Cuba, uh, which is actually twice as far from Washington as um, Kiev is from Moscow. Um, and the United States was prepared to have threaten a world nuclear war, or to have fight, if necessary, to fight a world nuclear war uh, to stop this. So they knew perfectly well this was provocation, but it hasn't really gone according to plan. Um, despite, uh, I think that they what they thought was that Russia would just give in to this, 
That was a big miscalculation by the United States, the war. And, and although they've tried to disguise the fact that the uh, they've tried to claim that Ukraine's winning, it's actually clear and it's beginning to be admitted in the Western media that Ukraine is losing, mm-hmm. is losing mm-hmm. the war, uh, particularly in the East Ukraine. Now, it would be very stupid for the United States to pick, as they've got, they, as they've got themselves into a mess which they hadn't anticipated in Ukraine, to, to take on China at the same time, what, why take on mm-hmm. two very powerful enemies at the same time? Uh, well, what they're going to do is they're going to try to defeat Russia, and having defeated that, mm-hmm. then they'll turn around and attack China. So what Blinken's aim, Blinken's speech, is to conceal what the United States' real positions are. Can I ask, I've asked this of other other guests uh, at the time, but uh, that makes total sense to me, John. And so then I ask, what do you make of Joe Biden repeatedly uh, undermining or misrepresenting U.S. policy toward t- Taiwan? Because this is he does not it, an accident. Yeah, he does it so often. It's hard to believe it's an accident, mm-hmm. but it is extremely provocative. And so, you know, if it's not an accident, then you say, well, are you trying to goad China into into some kind of uh, military adventure? And, right. and why now? If, as you say, John, this is the worst possible time. Uh, what do you think? Do, do you think that Joe Biden is just doing this by accident? No, not at all. I think there's, there is a very good phrase in China, Chinese phrase, which says to cross the river while feeling the stones beneath the feet. It's normally applied to Chinese economic policy, but it actually applies very well to the United States. The United States has decided that it wants a confrontation with China. There's a very, very good, If I, I've written many articles about this from an economic point of view. There's a very, very good article by John Bellamy Foster um, in Monthly Review. Um, which analyzes this in great detail in the US in the US ruling class. But the United States is confronted with a big problem, which is the combination of China and Russia is very powerful. And therefore, it's not a very good idea to try to take on both of these in a big confrontation at the same time. So what Biden's doing is he's signaling by his mistakes between inverted commas, the continuity of the hostility of the United States towards China. He's giving some encouragement to the the Taiwan separatists, but he's not actually prepared to have a confrontation at the present time because while Biden's rhetoric is very bad, it's not not rhetoric that would cause a frontal confrontation uh, between the United States and China. It would be definite measures uh, by the United States. So it would be, for example, you know, mm-hmm. they recognize the independence of Taiwan to take the most extreme. They uh, completely violate the one China policy by, you know, um, if not formal recognition of Taiwan, inviting all the top Taiwanese leaders to the United States, or they sell uh, um, even more offensive weaponry to uh mm-hmm. To Taiwan, you know, China's a big grown-up country. It's not going to be led into a confrontation with the United States because of rhetoric. It'll only be done by action. So Biden's engaging in rhetoric to show what the U.S. policy is, but he's avoiding an, an actual confrontation until he knows what the outcome of the war in the Ukraine is. Let's talk a little bit about um, China's foreign policy. I, I wonder if you could tell us more about. The agreement China is reportedly proposing to a dozen Pacific Island nations, it's being called a security agreement, but I see it's its a, to cooperate on policing, security and, and data communications. Uh, the Guardian is reporting this and they're saying Micronesia is planning to reject the proposal for fear of sparking a new Cold War between China and the West. 
And so I wonder if you know anything more about what China's proposing. I'm wondering if the data communications are a real uh, sticking point here for the West, if this would sort of compete with their Five Eyes network uh, and what, you know, what it might mean for China to have a deeper cooperation with Pacific Islands, particularly for Australia. Well, China wants a policy of economic cooperation. It's not a security agreement at all. This is all just mm-hmm. rhetoric, right? China mm-hmm. wants to have economic cooperation uh, with the whole world in general and obviously with its surrounding uh, countries. And the the Pacific Islands, are um, they're very close to China and they're very, very long way from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, China wants good relations with them. It wants the maximum economic uh, development uh, with them. Um, and uh, that's what China's pursuing. There's nothing unusual about it at all. It would like it would like to have better economic relations with the United States, and the obstacle to that is not China. The obstacle is the United States. So this is just the U.S. kicking up a great um, load of misleading nonsense as, as usual. I also wanted to ask a, a little bit more uh, about, well, the future of U.S.-China relations, because simultaneously with the U.S., uh, you know, trying to sort of poke the embers of Cold War, but not stir up too much flame right now. Politico has a story out in its magazine this weekend saying that it got to use one of the CIA's forecasting models to peer into the future of U.S.-China relations. And actually, everything looks great. It says tensions will ease between the U.S. and China soon as the Biden administration slashes consumer tariffs and Beijing welcomes the move. Expect a new round of trade negotiations. Uh, U.S. Secretary uh, of the Treasury Janet Yellen will make a big push for change. And Chinese Premier Li uh, Keqiang, long dismissed as an also ran, becomes a key player. So I wanted to ask you what you think of this relatively rosy forecast. And also, you know, something that jumps out to me, Blinken mentioned uh, Xi Jinping, you know, personally in his address. I I think it's interesting that this supposedly possible rosy outcome comes to pass partly as a result of Xi Jinping being eclipsed, right? This is the U.S. making things very personal. And I wonder how much we should read into that. Oh, I think a great deal. Mm-hmm. I think the United States was, um, for 40 years, it had a policy which could be described as looking for the Chinese Gorbachev. That was mm-hmm. that, that is, Gorbachev was an idiot right. whose, whose contradictory policies destroyed the Soviet Union. He had total illusions um, in, the, um, in the United States, um, and he reduced, uh, he, he reduced the Soviet Union to chaos. And therefore, the United States defeated the Soviet Union without ever having to. Well, it did fire a shot, but it didn't fire a shot directly at the Soviet Union. It, it fought right. wars, of course, with various allies of the Soviet Union, but it never had to have a direct military clash uh, with the Soviet Union. And they thought that they were going to find some similar um, Chinese idiot who would produce the same sort of chaos in China. And uh, we're doing this was quite explicit. If you read uh, the Mm -hmm. articles, they were looking for the Chinese Gorbachev. Well, Mm -hmm. they then realized that Xi Jinping is not the Chinese Gorbachev. Uh, Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise, he's a communist. Uh, Who could ever (laughs) have imagined such a thing? Um, You know, deep CIA had to carry out a great many years study in order to ascertain that he was a communist. Um, And uh, therefore, their search for the Chinese Gorbachev uh, failed. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they won't try to do such uh, sim- similar things again. 
And, and the policy of the United States is is simple. When when the United States feels strong, it's aggressive. Uh, when the United States feels weak, it suddenly becomes peace loving. Uh, you know, so it had the Vietnam War that ended in a big defeat. So then we had the policy of detente. Then when it, the U.S. felt a bit more stronger under Reagan, we had the uh, uh, new aggression against uh, the Soviet Union. During the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. felt weak. So it suddenly wanted the G20 and cooperation with China. And uh, then as soon as the United States felt a bit economically recovered, it started to launch a trade war. The situation is very simple. When the United States... Um, it feels weak, it has honeyed words. And if the United States feels a bit stronger, then it shows its real character and becomes more aggressive. So mm -hmm. it's very easy to read U.S. foreign policy. Let's also get into a little bit of uh, Wall Street Journal's sort of ongoing reporting on shifts in the global economy, especially as a result of sanctions and the war in Ukraine. Uh, this week, it had a story detailing some of the export bans being enacted around the world, most of them on foodstuffs. Uh, Indonesia put a ban on uh, exporting palm oil. I think this was now a couple of months ago, and actually that's one of the ones that's going to be lifted. Uh, but there are bans on seed oils, on grains, on beer, on ice cream being exported. And so I wonder if you see a big impact uh, ahead as a result of some of these bans and, and how long you would expect some of these curbs to remain in place. Well, the, the real big, yeah, the food crisis is very serious and very real. Mm -hmm. There are 800 million people who are facing uh, food insecurity, and that's oh, that's, that's going to go up. But the, yeah. the, 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 real, the only way that you can deal with this is to lift the sanctions on Russia. Yeah. Um, they, they're, because the, the key thing, the biggest of all, even in addition to the crops, is fertilizer, because that's the only way in which the local farmers can develop things. China is by far the world's largest exporter of fertilizer. It's also th exports three times as much wheat, incidentally, as the Ukraine. So the United States is trying to make up a story that the world food crisis, which is very real, mm -hmm. is due to uh, the uh, Putin preventing the export of Ukrainian wheat um, mm -hmm. and some export bans. It's not. It's the fundamental problem in this is the, um, the sanctions against uh, Russia, which the US doesn't want to lift. So that's the, that's the explanation of what is the real situation on food. The, mm. the UN Secretary General put it very well. You can't solve the international food crisis without bringing not merely Ukraine, but Russia back into the world um, food system. And this is the true. And I'm afraid it's going to, the situation on food is going to get worse. Yeah, that's just awful. Mm -hmm. it, it is one of those things. Talking about family, I mean, we've had these conversations off and on now for the past couple of weeks, looking in particular at the Horn of Africa, you know, seeing the UN continue to uh, yeah. make these dire predictions and, and beg for help. And yet, yes. you know, that's sort of what continues, simply asking asking billionaires at various conferences to step up and do something. And it doesn't seem to have much effect. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. We don't, we can't, right? This problem is much too serious to be dealt with, you know, by charity from billionaires. Not that I rely on them very much anyway. You know, but, but there's 800 million people who are already facing food insecurity. And the UN calculations, this is going to go up uh, significantly. And, and of those 800 people, you know, 40 to 50 million people are in conditions in which their lack of food is not merely crippling for their long-term development, but threatens them, you know, with short-term, uh, you know, risk of uh, famine and death. This is an extremely serious situation. If the United States is a real defender of human rights, it would scrap the, the sanctions against Russia on food immediately. I think Russia's proposal, I think illness is very, 
very reasonable, which says, fine, we've got to solve this problem. So lift the sanctions on Russian food and Russian fertilizer. We will then arrange for corridors to take uh, Ukrainian ships out of um, out of Odessa. They, they would have to have obviously some deem because the Odessa is surrounded by mines at the moment, so ships can't get in and out. And then we'll we can tackle together the world uh, food problem. That's the only practical way to do it. And this is a very reasonable proposal. But the United States doesn't want to do this, of course, because its real aim is not to solve the problem of food. Its real aim is to try to um, weaken Russia, and it's prepared to use the uh, position, the position of you know hundreds of millions of poor people in the world, not to mention the reduction in living standards in the global north, in order to try to pursue its policy, um, to pursue its war in Ukraine. That's what's going on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, even if uh, as unfortunate as it is. Uh, thank you. That was John Ross, author and economist and senior fellow at the Chongyang University uh, Institute at Renmin University. John, as always, thanks so much for your time. Very pleased to be here. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few last headlines for you. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We have a sad, sad story to pass on. Uh, Ray Liotta, the wonderful actor from Goodfellas and from Field of Dreams and Blow and, wow, he's been in so many different things, uh, died unexpectedly overnight. He was filming a movie in the Dominican Republic and uh, apparently died in his sleep. Uh, the police are saying that there's no evidence of foul play or anything untoward. It looks like he just had a heart attack in his sleep, 67 years old. He just got married a year ago, December. Um, oh, I thought he was engaged. Oh. I, listen, I saw that on Twitter. Oh. So, so, so do we do not. We, this is not. a blow. He was oh, a, yeah. I, I was a big fan of his. Yeah. You know? It's really sad. It really is. And he was pretty young, 67. 67. That's, uh, yeah. I yeah. mean. I, I call that young. Yeah. I think that's still young. I mean, it's a great life to have had. And uh, there are certainly worse deaths than dying in your sleep on a beautiful island. I'll say. So. That's right. If that's how you're going to go. That's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good way to go. Yeah. I, I wanted to raise something yesterday that we didn't have time for. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it, it just struck me as so funny. Uh, there's a there's a kerfuffle taking place at the Cincinnati Museum of Art. And uh, they've got a large painting up. It's more of a mural than a painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a painting of um, of the cartoon character uh, Piglet. Piglet is holding a gun. And in front of Piglet, I'm looking at it right now, yeah. is Winnie the Pooh with his hands cuffed behind his back. He's laying in a pool of his own blood. And uh, uh, Tigger is off on the other side holding a sign saying off the pigs. And he's he's standing with Eeyore and uh, I forget the rabbit's name. Uh, the cops are going crazy over this, right? Yeah. And they're demanding that the museum remove the the painting. Uh, the president of the Cincinnati Fraternal Order of Police 
says this is meant to divide citizens and their police officers. I'm without us, crime runs rampant. Like, okay, relax. It's an artwork. How much great art shows grisly scenes of death? Right. Right? Who's it? Right. Lilith who cuts off the right. head of, oh, what's it? John the Baptist. Was it John or the no, Baptist? No, 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 not no, Lilith. Lived. Lilith didn't do John the Baptist. It was Herod's wife. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Lilith, uh, Some, she's from l- the Old Testament. Listen, there's lots of heads being cut off, is sure. what we're saying. Heads being cut off, women being raped, battles, people dying, people being speared. Man, every saint. Right. The depiction of every saint every is grisly. Saint. Is that encouraging violence against saints? Ay, ay, ay. I think that's really silly. And this this wasn't even controversial until the wife of a policeman went to the museum and saw it. The painting is entitled Motherland Theme Park Black Panther Gift Shop, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I also love it. <laughs> she was touring the museum with her child. It says here she saw something that was completely hateful, completely ugly, and it was so ugly because it was so personal. Okay. Well, sorry you feel personally affronted by the art. <sighs> Listen. God. There was another interesting story uh, in the Washington Post today about a study a pretty large scale study of the impact of vaccines on symptoms of long COVID. And now my understanding, too, is yeah. like long COVID itself is is still very much a, a mystery. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, why some people seem to have lingering mm-hmm. symptoms is really not clear. But the study didn't have great news. It, it did not show that vaccines uh, really prevented people from developing these long-term symptoms. It appeared to reduce the risk of lung and blood clot disorders, but it did little to protect against most, most other symptoms. So yes. And it, they think now that, that, that it's people who have been vaccinated that are more susceptible to long COVID for some reason, and they don't understand why. Really? Mm-hmm. I had not heard that. But I will say this says, you know, six months after an initial diagnosis, people in the study who were vaccinated had a slightly reduced risk of getting long COVID, 15% overall. Um, But there wasn't really a difference between being vaccinated or unvaccinated when it came to longer term risks of uh, neurological issues, kidney failure, gastrointestinal symptoms and and other conditions. So the vaccines still seem to protect you from dying and from getting really acutely ill. Mm -hmm. Right. But when it comes to the sort of mysterious lingering symptoms or developing disorders, still very much in the dark. Yep. There's a lot we don't know. Well, we're going to leave you guys in the dark. Sorry about that, but that's just how it works out some days. I want to say thanks to all our guests and our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And Monday's a holiday. Don't forget it. Tomorrow's Friday. Yeah. We won't be in on Monday. And usually we need to remind ourselves. Remind ourselves. Yes. (laughs) 